You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Down here in the valley, every shadow you see has its own story. Down here in the valley, every puddle of mud comes from tears and blood. And it's so hard just to get warm that the chill turns into despair. Will you lift me up with tender care? Will you wash me clean in the palm of your hands? Will you hold me close so I can thrive? When you touch me, that's when I know I'm alive. Down here in the valley, nothing's able to grow because the light's too low. Folks spend their days digging round for diamonds and gold till they just get old. And they don't know anything else. They don't know they're breathing bad air. But I'm tired of living like this. And my soul cries out if you're there. Will you lift me up with tender care? Will you wash me clean in the palm of your hands? Lord, hold me close so I can thrive. When you touch me, that's when I know I'm alive. Call me up to your side. Draw me up to your light. Let it blind me. Lord, refine me. Refine me out of my mind. Will you lift me up with tender care? Will you wash me clean in the palm of your hands? Lord, hold me close so I can thrive. When you touch me, that's when I know I'm alive. Will you lift me up with tender care? Will you wash me clean in the palm of your hands? Lord, hold me close so I can thrive. When you touch me, that's when I know I'm alive. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. We started this episode off a little bit different, didn't we? This is episode 128 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, episode 63 of season 3. It is May 26, 2021, and also Wednesday. I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday. It was just the two of us. He's our small group leader, and everybody else couldn't make it to small group, men's small group, last night. And so we just sat there and talked about work, about politics, about family, about life. It occurred to me that it is a good thing to be honest about difficulties. Not everything needs to be victorious. Not everything needs to be positive. Not everything needs to be an instant gratification, turnabout, victory. That little selection that I read for you at the beginning of this episode is from the title track to the Newsboys album, Thrive. And personally, that is my favorite Newsboys album. I grew up in my teenage years listening to a lot of Newsboys and then on into my 20s. And I think that's when you know something has staying power is your teenage years, your 20s, your 30s now for me. It still resonates and it still rings true. That's an odd song to be titled Thrive in an album by a group that often likes to keep things 
a little bit odd, a little bit funny, a little bit quirky, a little bit fun. But again, odd. That's what I like about the Newsboys. I always enjoyed the Newsboys for being willing to be odd, a little bit weird, a little bit different. We don't need everything to be fun. We don't need everything to be funny. We don't need everything to be positive. But if you're willing to be a little bit odd, then maybe sometimes you cope with facts and aspects of life that popular society in our day and age has forgotten how to cope with. Maybe sometimes you reckon with lament. And so that track right there deals with some real stuff, some sad stuff, some troubling stuff, some dark imagery, some pain. And yet it's titled Thrive. Is that all right? Is it okay? Yes, of course it is. The Psalms are full of lament, which is somewhat ironic in our day and age because the Psalms are praise, songs of thankfulness, of recognition, of worship. A lot of them have to do with pain and frustration and questioning and longing and why? Why do the wicked prosper? Why am I suffering? Why are things not always going the way that I thought they should go? This is not the goodness that the Lord says he created the earth and everything in it and saw. So what happened? And did he change? Did I do something wrong? Two episodes ago, I talked about children who are committing suicide in America, or they are feeling suicidal. And what do we do about that? And I got a private message yesterday from my neighbor, two houses down, JP Chavez. JP, thank you as always. He sent me two links. One was a piece of satire that I should have recognized immediately was satire. I fell for it. I was a little bit busy, and so I just read through it real quick because it was short. And I'll share it with you, but I'll tell you on the front end that it is satire, and you'll think it is funny. Tominthebox.blogspot.com, May 18th, 2013, Sacramento, California. Caleb switches to exclusive a cappella psalmody. Many American Christians were shocked on Friday morning as they turned on their radios. The popular radio station known as Caleb had suddenly switched from their familiar format of contemporary Christian music, CCM, and praise and worship music to a cappella, unaccompanied psalms with recordings taken from various congregations of the Free Church of Scotland. Quote, I was expecting Chris Tomlin when I loaded up the kids for school this morning, end quote, said Kathy Valen, mother of four. Quote, instead, I got a jarring rendition of Psalm 109.10. Let his children be continuously vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. My kids were just a little freaked out. I'll admit, I was too. All around the country, on the various repeater stations, people were baffled, checking their radios, switching stations, and visiting the Caleb website to make sure everything was okay. The station was flooded with calls all day long, especially when the daily encouraging word 
was replaced with sermons of the late Do- Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. TBNN tried to reach someone at the station for comment. One DJ who asked to remain anonymous stated only that the change is likely to be permanent and that we will be shutting down every Sunday in observance of the Sabbath. Funny, funny story and also entirely fictitious. Definitely not a real news story. But would it be so bad if it were? I don't think it'd be bad at all. I think it would be refreshing. I think it would be needful. I think it would bring balance to the force. There is an excessive need felt in American Christianity to have everything be happy all the time. Everything needs to be positive and encouraging all the time. I've talked a lot on this program about the situation that I endured and encountered and dealt with, hopefully faithfully, at Yellowstone Community Church in Savage, Montana. And the primary reason for being rebuked myself by the elders at that church was that I had written a letter of rebuke to one of the elders for the way he was not handling or choosing to handle a certain situation concerning his family. And the chief complaint from one of the elders was that my letter was not very encouraging. It was not very loving. On what basis was it not very loving? Because love has to only ever be encouraging, didn't you know? Love can't ever reckon with bad behavior, apparently. Love can't ever reckon with negative emotions, apparently. Love can't reckon with lament, apparently. Something is broken in our love if we bring up bad behavior and sin and pain and the fact that somebody is hurting somebody else. Maybe even they have a pattern of behavior hurting somebody else. Love and encouragement apparently require we don't go there. We don't confront those people because then we would be admitting that the person they hurt is feeling some negative emotions. And we don't have negative emotions in this house. We don't have negative emotions in this church. No, no, no. That's not very spiritual. That's not very loving. You just need more faith. The person being confronted for their bad behavior would also then, presumably, if they listened to the rebuke, they also would be feeling some negative emotions. And that's just not loving. That's not encouraging. That's not positive encouraging. K-Love, Christianity. So whatever the truth of my letter didn't matter because this person didn't feel loved. Loved on what basis? On a biblical basis or on a pop culture type basis in which we have these unrealistic expectations that Everything is always a bed of roses, even when it's more of a bed of thorns, and it hurts. And we have to reckon with, why does it hurt? Does it hurt because the creation is broken? 
generally speaking in the abstract or does it hurt sometimes because we are the creation that is broken sometimes specifically the psalms again are full of lament and the bible old testament and new testament is full of rebuke calls to repentance what is repentance repentance is literally turning away it is changing course it is stopping what you were doing because it was wrong it was dark it was wicked and doing the good thing. And how do we repent of calling people to repentance? How does that work exactly? It's a self-defeating argument, just like claims that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Well, that's an absolute truth claim that you're saying there is no such thing as absolute truth. In order for that claim to be true, it has to be false. And now you just go around in circles eternally, like the dog that performs this weird ritual before it lays down on the rug in front of the fireplace. Only you never actually come to rest. You never lay down. You just chase your tail forever till you die of exhaustion. But then again, me saying that's not very positive and it's not very encouraging and you probably don't want to hear that. But if it's true, and if I do in fact love you, then maybe encouragement sometimes means encouragement to turn away from sin and folly and error and to come back into a right understanding if you once had a right understanding and drifted. Perhaps love sometimes is rebuke because this pattern of behavior hurts you and it hurts these other people around you, in your family, in your community, in your workplace, this is not the Lord's will for you. If we make room for psalms of lament and the very frank discussion of sadness, frustration, questioning, depression in the Bible, if we make room for that, then maybe we process those feelings and the circumstances which often prompt those feelings. Perhaps we process those things in the only way that they can truly be processed. Perhaps when things don't need to be positive, encouraging all the time, we find that God has a satisfying answer and we need it. We need that answer from him in order to thrive. I personally love the song Thrive by the Newsboys. I love it. I love it a lot because it's refreshing, because it's unusual. And the fact that the newsboys are willing to be a little bit odd, maybe it's just what we need sometimes. Not because the newsboys are the answer, but because if they've latched on to the psalm of lament and they have tied it, they have hitched that wagon to the horse of God's word, that wagon of these negative emotions, and we let God take all this baggage in the wagon to the place he intends it to go instead of stopping and digging in our heels like a stubborn mule, refusing to go any further and laying down on the road. Perhaps if we let God take this burden where it's supposed to go, we can unload it and we can be free and thrive down here in the valley, every shadow you see has its own story. Down here in the valley, every puddle of mud comes from tears 
and blood, and it's so hard just to get warm that the chill turns into despair. Do you get goosebumps when you read that, when you hear that? Do you get goosebumps? Because we're not saying those kinds of things in our music. We're not saying those kinds of things in our conversation. How are we supposed to encourage one another when this sort of stuff is always swept under the rug and shoved in the closet and hidden under the bed? And when we ask one another, how are you? The answer has to be, I keep up appearances. Good. Really good. Fantastic. Wonderful. Excellent. Great. Splendid. Couldn't be better. Let me give you my resume of all of the ways in which I have been victorious just today. Is that real or is that artificial? Is that artificial sweetener? You get a toothache at a certain point. The bitterness is still there. You just shoved it deep down inside and you're not reckoning with it and you're not dealing with it. And it's going to still be there. Down here in the valley, nothing's able to grow because the light's too low. Folks spend their days digging around for diamonds and gold till they just get old. And they don't know anything else. They don't know they're breathing bad air. But I'm tired of living like this, and my soul cries out, if you're there. If you're there, honesty. If you're there, Lord, what do I do with this? What do I do with the fact that I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. That psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, is not all triumphalism. It is tacit recognition that sometimes we do. Do we have a private insecurity that maybe we shouldn't dwell too long on the fact that we live in that valley or we walk through that valley? Some seasons of life, we walk through that valley. And if we have to rush and hurry and hustle quickly in conversation to gloss over the fact that we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that belies a certain insecurity that maybe we do fear evil and we don't trust that the Good Shepherd will usher us through safely on the other side at some point, not yet, at some point. This is not the end. Do we make the most of the fact that we are in a trying circumstance when we A, pretend that it's not that bad, or B, admit, yes, actually, this is that bad. <laughs> it is that bad. It's actually, it's worse than you know. It's worse than you had imagined. How's that for encouragement? Things are probably worse than you supposed initially. But also, God is better than you initially supposed. Circumstances are worse than you had calculated, but God is more faithful than you had accounted for. He is more loving and more gracious and more merciful and more protective and more sovereign than you realized. Will you lift me up with tender care? Will you wash me clean in the palm of your hands? Will you hold me close so I can thrive? When you touch me, that's when I know I'm alive. I get goosebumps. I don't know about you. I get goosebumps at that. 
And the point is not to chase goosebumps, right? This is not R.L. Stein. We're not trying to be sensationalist here. But the point is to find relief when we are sorely needing relief. And the point is for us to make welcome those who are brokenhearted because how else are we supposed to love them? Imagine, if you will, that you're in my wife's circumstance and you are going to doctor after doctor after doctor trying to figure out what's going on. And you go to a doctor and they say, hmm, interesting. Well, it sounds like you might have rheumatoid arthritis. Let's test for that. Oh, it came back negative. Well, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Okay, next. So then you go on to another doctor and they throw some pills at it and they think, we'll see if this works. We'll try it. No? Hmm, odd. Oh, well. Next. By the time my wife started talking with Dr. Grace Alessi here in Fort Collins, Colorado, she's pretty frustrated. We were both pretty despairing, pretty, I don't know, unbelieving maybe that this is ever going to get fixed, but also not willing to give up and not willing to throw in the towel. And then we go and we talk with this doctor, or rather she goes and talks with this doctor. I still haven't had the pleasure just yet, but I'd love to shake Dr. Alessi's hand and thank her at some point. And what my wife tells me is that in her consultations with Dr. Alessi, there was no rush. It was not, hey, let's hurry up and get this over with so I can get on to my next patient because I'm dealing in quantity here. And she wanted to know everything. No detail left out. What about this? What about that? What about this? Has this ever happened? Do you ever experience this? When this goes on, when you have this flare-up, does X, Y, and Z also happen? Have you ever connected those dots before? Okay, I'd like to order this, 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 and this test all at the same time. Let's just do a whole battery of tests, and let's see what comes back. I have some suspicions. I think it could be X and Y. It might also be Z. Now tell me this. Is that a waste of time when the doctor wants to do testing and diagnostics? I'm talking on the genetic level. I'm talking on the nutritional level. When she wants to do blood work, take samples of everything you could imagine. Breath, samples of her breathing, her breathing out or exhalation. Let's see how much methane is in that. Let's see if there's some H2S actually in your breath and what the level is because that might tell us that you have certain types of bacteria that have gone crazy and they have overgrown your system. And is that a distraction? Is that a waste of time? I didn't come to you for testing. I didn't come to you so we could talk about what's wrong with me. I came to you so you could fix it. So I can just skip to the part where I feel better. Do you say things like that? Of course you don't say things like that. Not when it's your physical health. You go to somebody who knows what to do and you let them take the lead on how to figure out what's wrong because you can't fix it if you don't know what's wrong. You can't reckon with a solution until we've correctly defined the problem. You could throw an endless variety of pills at something and you might make it worse. You might not just not fix it. You might make it worse unless you're willing 
to slow down and look at what is actually going on here. Down here in the valley, nothing's able to grow because the light's too low. Folks spend their days digging around for diamonds and gold till they just get old. And they don't know anything else. They don't know they're breathing bad air. But I'm tired of living like this. And my soul cries out, if you're there. The answer is not newsboys, obviously. The answer is not that you need to just listen to this song over and over and over again. But the answer, in part, in the church today is that we need to become comfortable again with things not always being so hunky-dory. Otherwise, we can't really love one another as Christ loved us. It says in the Gospels that Jesus had compassion on the crowds that came to him, lame, sick, possessed by demons, blind, deaf, people with diseases that no doctor had been able to cure, come to Jesus and even just touch the hem of his garment, his robe, his tunic, whatever, just touch that. And all of a sudden they're healed. He tells them to rise, take up their bed and walk. And even though they've been lame their entire lives, now look at them. They're walking, they're running. Jesus saw hungry people and he had compassion on them and he fed them sometimes. And he wasn't there just to feed their stomachs, but he was there to provide for them. And insofar as giving them a meal in this circumstance, in that circumstance, was symbolic and also literally what they physically needed, and that was a valid need, he did it. And he set an example for us. And when we come to the church and we are hurting and when we're in pain and when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death or when we are doing pretty okay right now, but we have this example in Christ, we need to embrace the problem of pain and reckon with it and we need to live out a practical theology that demonstrates that our God is greater than this. And he is able to reckon with this. And God's not afraid of these questions. And God's not afraid of our circumstances. What is sovereign? Is it our circumstances? We're afraid of our circumstances encountering the God of the universe because our circumstances might just be victorious over him? Is that our insecurity? Do we have a form of godliness, but we deny its power? Because maybe if I just fake it long enough, eventually I'll make it. And nobody has to be the wiser that this was going on behind the scenes. Hmm. I want to read for you a little bit of the other link that JP sent me that I thought was just really, really good. And it's Carl Truman. Read his book if you haven't. It is fantastic. It is really, really good. Very well-written. Very helpful. Extremely timely. Rise and triumph of the modern self. I'd like to shake his hand too. Mr. Truman, you did a fine job there. But his article here in ninemarks.org is titled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Published 325, 2019. I'll read a section of it for you, and then I've got to go. He writes, Many of us despise the health, wealth, and happiness teachings of the American televangelists and their pernicious British counterparts as scandalous blasphemy. The idea that Christianity, at whose center stands the suffering servant, the man who had nowhere to lay his head, 
and the one who was obedient to death, even death on the cross, should be used to justify the idolatrous greed of affluent Westerners, simply buggers' belief. Nevertheless, there's a real danger that these heretical teachings have seeped into evangelical life in an imperceptible yet devastating way, affecting not so much of our theology as our horizons of expectation. We live, after all, in a society whose values are precisely those of health, wealth, and happiness. Look at the number of medical dramas and documentaries on television. Is our obsession with the medical profession not a function of our obsession with health? Or listen to the politicians. New labor finance ministers say they want to reward risk-takers. Are they referring to the men and women who work in the slums with the drug addicts, who bravely stand against the paramilitary control of their communities in Ulster, who go to areas of conflict and put their lives on the line, who take real risks? Of course not. They mean the entrepreneurs and the wealth creators, often those whose sole motive, whatever the altruistic rhetoric, is personal profit, and whose only risks are the irresponsible financial speculations in which they indulge with the hard-earned savings and pensions of others. These are the counterfeit risk-takers that society must apparently prioritize and reward with tax breaks, gongs, and social status. If the real risk-takers need money, they can always queue up with their begging bowls outside the Ministry of Greed, a.k.a. the National Lottery, and take their turn with the rest of society's no-hopers and second-class causes. And look at the veritable explosion in the litigation and compensation arena. Once upon a time, compensation was linked to loss of earnings. Now it is often apparently linked to loss of comfort and happiness with all of the trivial court cases that it inevitably brings in its wake. Health, wealth, and happiness, the three modern obsessions, the three modern idols. Where does the church stand in all this? Where do we as individual Christians put ourselves in relation to what is going on? First, let us look at the contemporary language of worship. Now, worship is a difficult subject, and being a peace-loving sort of chap who always steers well clear of controversy, I would hate to say anything controversial at this point about the relative merits of hymns and choruses, of organs and music bands, etc. Having experienced and generally appreciated worship across the whole evangelical spectrum, from charismatic to reformed, I am myself concerned here less with the form of worship than I am with its content. I would, however, like to make just one observation. The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, have almost entirely dropped from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene. I am not certain about why this should be, but I have an instinctive feel that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit that they are a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. And of course, if one does admit to them, one must neither accept them nor take any personal responsibility for them. One must blame one's parents, sue one's employer, pop a pill or check into a clinic in order to have such dysfunctional emotions soothed and one's self-image restored. Now, one would not expect the world to have much time for the weakness of the psalmist's cries. It is very disturbing, however, when these cries of lamentation disappear from the language and worship of the church. Perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament, but then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is in terms of numbers, influence, and spiritual maturity. Perhaps, and this is more likely, it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know 
what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing. Yet the human condition is a poor one, and the Christians who are aware of this deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country should know this. A diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party, a theologically incorrect and a pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. Has an unconscious belief that Christianity is, or at least should be, all about health, wealth, and happiness silently corrupted the content of our worship? Few Christians in areas where the church has been strongest over recent decades, China, Africa, Eastern Europe, would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as normal Christian experience. Indeed, the biblical portraits of believers give no room to such a notion. Look at Abraham, Joseph, David, Jeremiah, and the detailed account of the psalmist's experiences. Much agony, much lamentation, occasional despair, and joy when it manifests itself is very different from the frothy triumphalism that has infected so much of our modern Western Christianity. In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. Does our contemporary language of worship reflect the horizon of expectation regarding the believer's experience, which the Psalter proposes as normative? If not, why not? Is it because the comfortable values of Western middle-class consumerism have silently infiltrated the church and made us consider such cries irrelevant, embarrassing, and signs of abject failure? I once suggested at a church meeting that the Psalms should take a higher priority in evangelical worship than they generally do, and was told in no uncertain terms by one indignant person that such a view betrayed a heart that had no interest in evangelism. On the contrary, I believe it is the exclusion of the experiences and expectations of the psalmists from our worship, and thus from our horizons of expectation, which has in large part crippled the evangelistic efforts of the church in the West and turned us all into spiritual pixies. That's a great phrase, by the way. Good job, Truman. By excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. By so doing, it has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism and generated an insipid, trivial, and unrealistically triumphalist Christianity and confirmed its impeccable credentials as a club for the complacent. In the last year, I've asked three very different evangelical audiences what miserable Christians can sing in church on each occasion. My question has elicited uproarious laughter, as if the idea of a broken-hearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd as to be comical. And yet I posed the question in all seriousness. Is it any wonder that British evangelicalism, from the Reformed to the Charismatic, is almost entirely a comfortable middle-class phenomenon? That's maybe half of the article, but time does not permit me to read the other half. And you can read it when I post it as a link in the description for this podcast, I would recommend you read the article in its entirety, read it slowly, and think about it. He's right, you know. Before people started telling Lauren that she should 
not settle for me and she should shop around. She was at college and there were other fish in the sea and she should have fun and finish her nursing degree. The big thing that I did that ruffled so many feathers at First Baptist Church in Hillsboro, Ohio, was that I came up to the pastor at the end of a service, at the end of a sermon, and I asked if I could address the congregation. And I'll admit that is odd. That's odd like the newsboys singing Thrive, maybe. That's odd like Carl Truman asking groups of evangelical Christians what miserable Christians can sing in church. It's odd that I approached the pastor after his sermon and I asked if I could address the congregation, but he permitted me. And it wasn't so unusual for me to be up in front of everybody because I helped with music and I helped with the drama ministry. And so why not? It's a small Baptist congregation, American Baptist congregation. I got up and I spoke about a friend of mine, my ex-girlfriend actually at the time, and how she had broken down crying at youth group, at Bible study, that most recent Wednesday, previous Wednesday, before that Sunday. And she was hurting, and she was troubled, and she was upset. And was that okay, that she was upset, and she was hurting, and that we stopped everything. We stopped our Bible study for a time to console her, to pray for her, to talk with her, to listen to what was going on in her life. And it wasn't funny, and it wasn't inspiring, it wasn't hilarious, it wasn't brilliant. It was just raw life. And I told that congregation First Baptist Church, that it occurred to me as I was reading the Gospels and I was reading God's Word that God's servants are not always trying to be funny and they're not always trying to be brilliant and they're not always trying to seem so profound and impressive. Very often, they're just telling it like it is and reckoning with human frailty, their own and that of those around them. And the goodness of God can cope with that. It doesn't need us to get together and play church and pretend that everything's fine. It should not be necessary that every time somebody asks me how I'm doing, I need to come up with some way to make them laugh. I need to come up with some way to have them think that I'm super smart. I've got it all together. Because if I act like that, if I'm always acting like that, then what does that say for the people in our midst who are hurting and they need to be able to talk about that so that we can help them with it. So I said all of this and more similar things. And I said that the Lord had put that on my heart and I felt he was calling me, prompting me to say that and to share it with them. And that was all I had. And thank you. And I felt a lot of burning eyes on me that morning. And I made my way to the back of the sanctuary and I walked out the front doors and down the sidewalk because I felt profoundly unwelcome and uncomfortable having just said that as a 18-year-old boy, 19-year-old young man, however you want to put it. 
I walked down the sidewalk and I kept walking and I didn't look back for a while because I wanted to get as far away from there as possible. And I heard in the following weeks that I had upset the sensibilities of some of the parents of my friends and some other people. I had upset them because you just don't do that. That's not okay. You disrupted the order of service. You just don't do that, young man. You're clearly troubled. Are you insane? Lauren, you should break up with him. He's not quite all right. Should shop around. What Truman is talking about here is real stuff. This is real talk. This is legit. These are legitimate concerns. And we should reckon with them. We should grapple with them. We should take a good, long, hard look at the practice of the church, not just our doctrinal statements. We can put anything in a doctrinal statement and then proceed to ignore it. What is our practice? What is it evident that we truly, really believe by our conduct? Maybe don't be so quick, I tell myself, to answer flippantly when somebody asks how I'm doing. Maybe watch out for this. Be on guard for this. Maybe meditate on the laments in the Psalms. Anyway, that's all I got. I got to go. I've got things going on at work. I need to go and attend to, be a part of. But thank you again, JP Chavez, for sharing with me those two links. I really enjoyed them both in different ways. And if anybody else, or if JP still, who is a treasure, he's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, If anybody has something like this that they want to send me, I'd love to talk about it. I'd love to discuss it. If it's a news article, if it's a essay, if it's a piece like Truman's, I'd send this kind of stuff to me all day, every day. And I'll try and share it on the program. We'll talk about it. We'll discuss it. But that's all I got. Thanks as always for listening. And until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.